Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you, Lord, we come with heavy hearts. Some of us are struggling with things in our lives and needs that we have. And Father, I pray that you'd meet them here and that you would work in their lives. Lord, I pray for all of us that as we look at our lives and evaluate our lives, that we would be eager to bring our lives in line with what you would have us to do and the way you'd have us to live. As we go through this message today, Father, I pray that that would be the case. I pray that you'd speak to each and every one of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you all be seated. You know, as I look out over the congregation, I know we've got some people missing. And I thought about doing this, but I didn't. I thought about announcing the sermon topic last week, and that way everybody would be here because the topic is on sex. So I knew everybody would show up for that. But at any rate... um, Glad that you're here this morning, and if you're visiting with us, I'm especially glad that you're here. I once um, was listening to a sermon, and a preacher made this statement. He was talking about how uh, that the nation, our nation of uh, the United States, had really sunken down into the depths of moral depravity and how it was getting worse by the minute. And he made this statement. He says, if God doesn't judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I thought, well, you know, that's a pretty good statement because it seems like more and more our country is becoming more and more like the biblical account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Our society just seems to be getting worse. It's not that sin hasn't always been here because it has. And the things that we're going to be talking about today have always been here and always happened. But it seems like in in this society that we live in today, there doesn't seem to be any shame. Um, everything is out in the open, everything is trying to be accepted as normal, or at least trying to be pushed on us as normal. And um, it seems like one person after another just tries to see how bad they can be, and then they go on TV and brag about it. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it's just disgusting. And, and the more you look at this, the, the, the more you realize that it's not going to be too many more years, and this nation is really going to be in trouble. You know, God's morality has not ever changed. It has never changed. And time goes on and and times change. You know, we always hear that. Times change. The culture is different. Situations change. Blah, blah, blah. God never changed. And God never changed the rules. He never said this is now what was immoral is now okay. He never said that. Um, God's morality is not outdated. And Scripture is very clear. None of us have an excuse. Um, We are without excuse. When we look to see what God has said and compare our lives to that, we really don't have an excuse for some of the things that we do. Today what I want to talk to you about is living for the Lord in the land of Sodom. And I want to give you four reasons to live a moral life. That's pretty basic, pretty upfront, pretty clear. You could probably think of a lot of them. You know, the number one reason people give, well, you, it's because the Bible said to. And that's a good reason, but that's not one of the ones I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to be talking about some other reasons, maybe some that you don't think of very often. But why in the world should you and I live moral lives? Let me jump right in, okay? Um, four things. Number one is this. You live a moral life because of the damage that results from, from immorality. There's damage that results from living a life that's immoral. We don't often think of that. I've heard people say to me, well, why is, why is God so uptight about sex? 
you know, it seems like the Apostle Paul was just against it. And uh, somehow it shouldn't be that way. The Bible's outdated. Um, sex is just one of those things that's victimless. Nobody gets hurt. Everybody has fun. Why not? Well, let's test that theory for a moment, okay? Let's take a teenage girl, for example, who is pressured into having sex by a boy that tells her that he loves her. And she does, only to find out two weeks later that he's moved on to the next girl. Is she hurt? Yeah. Is she a victim? Yeah. Let's take two teenagers who decide that they're in love and they're going to have sex and they're not married. And all of a sudden they turn up to be teen parents. And that wasn't planned for. Now who's hurt? Well, a lot of people. Or a teenage girl is pressured either by her family or by her boyfriend to have an abortion because she's become pregnant. Who gets hurt from that? When all the rest of the years of her life she has to live with the guilt and the shame of having done that. Young couple decide that they're going to consummate their love only to find a few months later that now they've contracted an STD. Are they hurt? Well, yeah, they're hurt. A man or a woman decides to become uh, or commit adultery and their marriage goes in divorce, winds up in divorce. Are there victims there? Well, of course there are. Children, family members, everybody. Let's take a young man who is consuming pornography and he's so consumed with it that he's, he's on fire. The Bible talks about just being on fire. His hormones are raging. He goes on a date, and now he's being charged with rape because he couldn't control himself. Is there a victim there? Did somebody get hurt? Absolutely. A young girl goes on the Internet and begins to sext her boyfriend, texting nude pictures of herself to her boyfriend. Only a couple of weeks later, he's not her boyfriend any longer, and he's just sharing those photographs with everybody on the Internet. Is there a victim there? You bet. A father who can't control himself all of a sudden finds himself being arrested for incest. Yeah, we cringe at the very thought of that. But is there not a victim there? You bet. And some young girl, some little girl, will grow up and be scarred for the rest of her life. And some of you ladies sitting here today are probably in that boat. Some young girl, because of something that's happened in her life in the teenage years growing up, doesn't believe that she'll ever be worthy of God's forgiveness or ever worthy of a husband, and now she finds herself working in the sex industry in some form or fashion. Victims? Yeah, all of them. Now let me share something with you, because we may not ever give this any thought, but there is rarely ever a time when immorality is involved that there's not a victim. Somebody always gets hurt, either immediately or extended family or something, but uh, somebody always gets hurt. There's one other way that we're hurt, and this is an interesting verse. Um, I wanted to share it with you. And listen to what it says. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's in verse 18. And, and Paul is talking. Here's what he says. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, what does that mean? I mean, that is a puzzling verse. Um, other sins you commit, they're outside the body. 
so forth, stealing, you know, that sort of thing. He said, but then when it comes to this matter of sexual immorality, you're sinning against your body. Now, I heard a professor in seminary explain this verse, and I thought it was a good explanation. I honestly myself don't know what it means, but his explanation was something like this, and I've always used it and shared it with other people. But he said this. He said, very few things in life will touch a person's soul deeply, more deeply, than the matter of sexual intimacy. And it's meant and it's designed to be experienced between husband and wife, and it's supposed to deepen the love they already have for each other. He said, but here's the problem. He said, we uh, single people uh, begin to think, well, we're in love. We can do that, and we can experience that and so forth. And what happens is you develop a bond with a person that you may not end up marrying. And all of a sudden, emotionally, you are struggling because you are emotionally tied to a person that now you're no longer with and and, and probably not going to marry. And he's saying when you're immoral, you're forming a bond that goes to the depths of your soul. And nobody can explain that. It's just the way God created it, this wonderful gift called sex for a man and a wife. And whenever we break that, whenever we defile that, We are sinning against or hurting or damaging our bodies, our psyche, our mental state, whatever you want to call it. Now, I thought to myself, well, that was a good explanation. He went on to say that it goes like this. He said, everybody has boundaries. When they grow up, they have boundaries. And every time they enter into a sexual experience, the boundaries get pushed back. What it takes for them to be satisfied, what they're willing to be content with, what they experience, what they expect, it gets pushed back. This is the reason why somebody who begins doing things they shouldn't be doing, eventually years down the road look back and say, how did I, how did I ever get into this? Well, that's the way, because you begin to take those steps and you would not be satisfied any longer with what you had already done. Now it takes more. And so he's saying this whole thing, this whole idea goes into this sinning against your body. So, yeah, are there victims? You bet. I mean, every time we enter into an immoral situation of whatever kind it may be, then, yeah, there is damage to ourself personally, to others around us. The fallout is great, and we don't often think of it that way. But as far as a reason why you and I should choose to live a moral life, one of the reasons is because of the damage that results from immorality. Now, that's the first point. I threw that one in there, even though it's not in the text, because I wanted it to be a part of this study. Now, the next three that I'm going to share with you come out of the passage that we're looking at here in Ephesians. We're in the study in Ephesians, and we're in chapter 5, and the next three reasons why you and I should live moral lives are found out of this text. And let's look at this. Here's the second one. You live a moral life because of what God has done for you already. What God has done for you already is a motivation for, for us as believers to live a life that is honoring to God in the area of sexual morality. Let me show you this passage. Let me read for you the next four verses. One through four of Ephesians 5. He says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children... And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, is a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But 
Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now, what is the point here he's saying? He says, look, he said, you, you ought to be following God's example of love, that you love the other person rather than taking advantage of the other person. Look at what all God has done for you. He gave his son. He loved you so much. He died on the cross. He was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God, paid for all of your sins. Look at all that he's done for you. God demonstrated love to you. Now, he's saying, let me share this with you now. Whenever you are immoral and you take advantage of another person sexually, you are not loving that person. Now, this may come as a shock to you, but love is on one end of the spectrum, immorality on the other. And they are diametrically opposed. Because, you see, here's the problem. Whenever you or I or anyone else begins to press or to push or to chase after sexual satisfaction in an immoral situation, we are not loving the person. We say, I love you. No, you don't. Because if you loved me, you wouldn't ask me to do that. If you loved me, you would respect me. If you loved me, you would want what's best for me. So don't tell me you love me. And so he's saying here, look, rather than doing that, then you follow God's example. Because look at what God has done for you. And this is the motivation for you and me as believers to live a life that is morally pure. Because God has chosen to love me. And he has given to me. And he gave and he gave and he gave and he took nothing. That's the beauty of it. He took nothing. He gave everything to me. This is why he says here that... This, this is improper for God's holy people, he says. It's out of place for God's holy people, he says. Further down in this passage, he says, it's shameful that you and I shouldn't live that way because a view of what God has done for us. This is why I believe, right here at the end of this passage in verse 4, he says, rather than doing this, you ought to be giving thanks. I... We ought to be saying, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for me, because I'm recognizing that, I'm acknowledging that, that you have given and given and given. And because of your love for me, I'm going to demonstrate love to other people. So that means the person that you're dating, you show love and respect for. The person that you're friends with, the person that you're engaged to, whatever the case may be, you don't assume that just because you have feelings for somebody that somehow God says it's all right now, because it's not. And I don't know why we as a society have become more callous to this and we allow our children to live together, sometimes under our own roofs, and we think that it's okay, well, you can't do anything about it. Well, you could take a stand you know, you could say, this is not right, and I love you and I always will, but I'm not going to allow you to do this in my house. We go on, you know, we, the things that we accept are becoming more and more ungodly in this nation. And at some point we need to step up and say, you know what, right is right and wrong is wrong. And because of what God has done for me and my love for him, I will not do this. Now, here's the key. Even though you want to, okay? Now, this is important. Because sex is something that God has instilled with each one of us, within each one of us to, to seek that satisfaction. That's why people get married. If it weren't for that, why get married? 
Think about it. Okay? Yeah, it'll hit you here in a minute. But, but God says, no, this is the driving force that brings people together. It's the reason you're out there looking for somebody. There's nothing wrong with that. But because of what I've done for you and all that I've given to you, this ought to be the motivation for you to honor me and to say to yourself, I'm not going to live for God, I'm going to do it God's way. Look at this verse, and it, uh, I'll, I'll tie it in here and I'll show you how this fits in. It's in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Here's the verse, it says this, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? I get this, okay? God's kindness, what he's done for you, is the motivation that leads you to repentance. Hmm. Okay, now, we're, we grew up, most of us, in churches we call hell, hellfire and brimstone. Okay, here it goes something like this. That you better straighten up because God's going to get you. You better straighten up because God will hate you. Straighten up because you're, you're walking, the, you're balancing at the edge there. You might slip off into hell. Everything that mom and dad and the preacher and everybody else could think of to scare you into righteousness, that it was used. And yet when we come to the Scriptures, God says this. He says, you know what? Here's the thing that ought to motivate you to walk with me. Here's the thing that ought to keep you pure. And my love for you, my goodness to you, the things that I've given you, and my acceptance of you, my tolerance, my goodness ought to be the thing that motivates you to repent or to change and to stop doing that. And I've heard all of my ministry, every church I've ever been in, okay? It goes something like this. Preacher, you can't preach all that grace stuff. That's too much grace. People are going to take advantage of God's grace. I say, well, then let them. You know what? I would rather go down swinging with that than anything else. So don't talk to me about legalism. Don't talk to me about rules and regulations and all this. No, grace. You want to know what motivates people to live for God? If they understand, now that's the key, to understand what grace is. Not what you've heard, not what you've been taught, not what you think. But when you fully understand how much God has given to you, his open arm policy with you, his acceptance of you, his forgiveness of you, when you fully grasp that, you'll change. But it's so often the case that we don't fully grasp it. We're going to talk about it more here in just a minute. But here's the third reason. Now, the first two are these. Let me just remind you. Why should you live a moral life? Because of the damage that results from immorality all kinds of damage. Number two is because of what God has done for you already. What God has done for you already is a reason to live for Him. But here's the third reason. It's kind of similar to the second one. And it's this. You live a moral life because of who you are. You live a moral life because of who you are. Now this is key. Watch this, okay? Back up in verse 1, he calls them dearly loved children. He says, that's who you are. You're dearly loved children of God. Here's something else you are in verse 3. You are God's holy people. He said, that's who you Ephesians are. You're God's holy people. Down in verse 8, look at this verse. He says this. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. He said, here's who you are. You used to be darkness, now you're light. 
That's who you used to be. I told you the story before. I'll tell you again. I wasn't planning to do this, so I may stumble through it. When I lived in Florida, Deborah and I, we were in Bible college. And um, I was working in a little church. I was pastoring a little church. And this gal was new to the church, very attractive lady. She came over to the church, and then she asked, she said, could I have an appointment with you? Well, I'm a young pastor and didn't know any better. But I went to her apartment, her home. She said she wanted to know more about the Bible. Uh, okay. So I go. Well, as things began to unfold, it became apparent that she was looking for something more than my advice. And so basically, it was got around to the question of, well, what's wrong? Why not? Type thing. And the response is very simple. It's not who I am. It's not who I am. What did it mean by that? Well, I used to be, but now I'm not. I used to be in darkness, now I'm not. I used to live like that, now I don't. It's not who I am. See, you as a believer need to know who you are, your identity. It's not what you think. It's not what your neighbors think. It's not what the preacher says. See, your identity is in what God says you are, in the person that God says you that you are. And when God says to these people, here's who you are. You are dearly loved children. You are God's holy people. You used to be darkness, but now you're light. That's who you are. Now live like it. Now look, with that in mind, look at this passage I'm going to show you, because we're going to have to camp on this for a minute. Tell me, well, you don't have to tell me, but just think, okay? Where does this fit in to the context that we're talking about? Here it is. The next few verses, verses 5 through 7. Now watch. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Hmm. Now, if you're thinking, and you, hopefully you are, then you realize there's a problem. Because you know what we talk about and have looked at the verses that talk about saved by grace and you know faith and belief and all of these things? And then you come to a passage like this that says that whosoever commits these sins is going to hell. Or at least we think that's what it says. If you ask the average person that reads that verse, what do you think that verse is saying? Well, it's saying that, you know what, we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, and we have to be good. Or else we're going to hell. Hmm. Then why do you think Jesus died on a cross? Well, he died on a cross to save us and forgive our sins and so forth. And so we believe and we be good and then God saves us. And you know what? Christian after Christian goes right along with that and they never ever see an issue with that. They never, never see a problem with that. But there is. Let me show you something when it comes to the, the um, Bible interpretation and understanding and, and, and dealing with situations like this. We believe with all of our hearts that the Word of God is inspired. We believe that God wrote it through authors that are human, but what is conveyed through them onto the page is exactly what God wanted. 
And he did it in a way that we cannot understand. Bible scholars don't understand it, but we believe it. We understand it. This called inspiration. The Word of God is inspired by God. Now, listen, be very carefully, okay? If the Word of God is inspired by God, there are no contradictions. You understand that? This is important. Too many people that I have experienced over the years of my ministry are perfectly okay with there being contradictions. They're perfectly okay, and I've had pastors do this. A pastor will get up on one Sunday and preach out of Ephesians about faith and grace and all of this, and you're saved by faith, and harp on that and hit it hard. And a few weeks later, for some reason, he's moved over into the book of James, and now he's preaching that you're saved by good works. And in his mind, those two perfectly are acceptable. Let me show you some verses. And then we'll come back to this and I'll explain it. You know the passages in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We looked at it earlier in this series that we're in. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that nobody can boast. Now listen to it very carefully, because he says you're saved by God's grace through faith. had nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. It is a gift from God. God gave you salvation. It had nothing to do. It's not by works. If it was, you could stand up and boast. You could brag, say, look what I did, you know. And oh, how we try to do that. We do. Here's another one. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says this. He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. How did I get saved? Well, God saved me. Well, it was me plus my good works and my goodness. No, it says right here, it's not by righteous things you did. It was because of His mercy He saved me through the rebirth, going into the grave and coming up, the whole spiritual part of that and what took place, being born again by faith and being filled with the Spirit. I am His child. It had nothing to do with me. But now here's the clincher. Now listen to this verse, okay? It's in Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Paul said this. He said, And if by grace then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Now, you've you've got to come to grips with this and understand that verse, okay? Because he says this, salvation is by grace. That means that God gave it to you. And if it is by grace, then it cannot be in any way, shape, or form by your good works. Because otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So to everybody that thinks that a person is saved by having faith in God and doing good things, you have nullified grace. Do you understand that? You have nullified grace. You're, you're preaching a gospel of works because the two cannot cohabitate. Now, what makes works good and bad? All right, let me show you. Let's pretend that this podium is the dividing line. The person on my right is lost. The, pers- the people on my left are saved. How do you get from one to the other? What is a work and what makes it good or bad? All right. Over here you have the lost world. And whenever anybody 
says something like this, I'm going to be saved by doing good. I'll go to church, give my money, help the poor, and God will save me because I'm a wonderful person. God says, no, I won't. That's works, and you'll not be saved that way. But yet at the same time, we're told as believers that good works are important. So how does that fit in? Because over here, when I have crossed the divide, so to speak, by the grace of God, and I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I pass over to here where I am a believer, a child of God, God says to me, now because you are mine, let's go, get to work. I do it because of what he's done for me. I don't do it in order to be saved. All right, now, this is kind of the groundwork, okay? So let's go back now to this passage. If he is not saying that a person is saved by not committing immorality, then what is he saying here? Let's put it in the context. He said in the previous verses, this is who you are, your loved children, your God's holy people, and so forth. And then he comes to this verse and he says, now listen, here's the unbelievers He said, this is what they're like. They're immoral, they're impure, they're greedy, they're actually idolaters. They worship the flesh and all the things that go with it. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And nobody, don't listen to anybody that tells you that it's okay for you to live that way. Because when you do, you are becoming partners with them. Don't live that way. Two groups, lost and saved. Saved by grace, not by this. And yet he says that the ones that are saved don't live over here. Now watch the next few verses, okay? In verse 7 he said, don't be partners with them. Watch now in verses 8 through 12. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all, in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Now, who are the disobedient he's talking about? See, this is what throws Christians. It's not you. Disobedient is a term that's used primarily in Scripture for the unbeliever. And he talks about it, they, they were disobeyed the gospel, they disobeyed this, they're going to be judged for their, good, their, good, their works and so forth. He's simply drawing a, a, a contrast, if you will. Darkness and light. You're over here by faith. Don't turn and try to live like this. That's not who you are, you see. That's not who you are. So why do I... Why do I make an effort or put forth an effort to live a godly life? Because the Lord tells me that that's, I'm different. So are you. We don't always act different, but that's not the point. It's our identity and who God says we are. God says you're children of light. Live like it. Don't be partners with this anymore. You're not the one in jeopardy here of going to hell. They are. He's simply saying they're lost. So don't live like them. Look at this passage. There's a similar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want to share this with you. It'll help clear things up. Listen to it as I read it. Verses 9 through 11. He says, or do not, or, I'm sorry, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a whole laundry list. And it's not even complete. He's just pulling out some. And then he says in verse 11, And that was what ye were. That is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What is he saying? Now watch this, guys, okay? He said, these people over here in darkness, and he gives the whole laundry list of all the things that they do. And he says, this is who they are. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You're over here. You used to be that, but now you're this. How'd you get here? Now, this is important. Because if there was ever a time to nail, put the nail in the coffin to prove that you're saved by good works, he would have done it here, but he didn't. He says, you used to be over there, but now you're here. What happened? Well, you were washed in the blood of Christ. You were justified, which means that God declared you righteous. You were sanctified, meaning that you were set apart from those people. This is the reason you're over here. He says, now why in the world do you want to go back and live like that? Why? Because that's not who you are. The whole key to the Christian life is this. You want to know what it's all about? It's about you and me living like the person that God says that we already are. Now think about this. This is the beauty of this, okay? We think in our hearts and in our inner minds that we have to live a certain way in order to gain God's favor. God says, no, you've already gained my favor because you're washed in the blood. You're my child. You're forgiven. You're light. You have a home in heaven that can never be changed or altered. Never. That's who you are. Now, all the days of the rest of your life, you live your life to live up to who I said you already are. Good work's important? Yeah. Because God wants me to live up to the standard of who God says that I am. And this is true when it comes to the issue of morality. Too many of us as Christians, now this is not just teenagers, these are adults and everybody, one form or fashion, whatever it may be, of immorality, whether it be pornography or, or what, you know, I'm not going to list them all, you know what it is, but we're content with living like that. And God says, don't do that. Look at all that I've done for you. Look at the danger you're in of doing it. What could happen to you. The things that I've listed. And guys, I said, I've already put you in a position of, of blessing. He said, and that's not who you are anymore. Look at this one last verse, and then I'll move to the fourth and final point here, okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, look at this. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple's? Of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Do you not know who you are? (laughs) You've been bought. When Jesus died on the cross and you put your faith in Him, you were bought. 
And you don't own your body anymore. Therefore, it's mine, God says. Therefore, in your body, honor me. Honor me. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you how easy it is because every human being struggles. Okay? We know that. If temptation wasn't such a a threat to you and me, then God wouldn't have spent so much time talking about it. So we know that it's a problem. We know that it's a threat. Nobody is above it because everybody is susceptible. It is a very, very strong pull in our lives. But remember what I've told you before. It's all about choices. You have to choose godliness. You choose righteousness. God has put you in the position and told you and me, I have now given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Now, live that way. And the Spirit of God is there to help and so forth. He said, but this is who I want you to understand. I want you to understand that your body is my temple. Because I lived there. When God placed His Spirit in every single believer, He took up residence in you and He says, you are now my temple. That's where I live. Every time you and I enter into immorality in some form or fashion, we're taking Him with us. That's a bit of a sobering thought there, but it's true. Here's the fourth, the final point, very quickly, okay? Why should I live a morally upstanding life? Um, Because of the blessings of God when we do. In other words, the blessings of God in your life when you do. Now watch this last couple of verses. Go back to Ephesians 5, the last couple of verses, 13 and 14. He says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. All right, what is he saying there? He's quoting something. We're not sure what it is. Some people say it's a passage out of um, Isaiah. It's similar, but I don't think that's what it is. It could be a, a common saying among church members at that time or something that they knew. But he's quoting this, and he's saying, finally, look, wake up. Wake up. Rise from the dead, because if you do, then Christ is going to shine his light on you. What is he saying? He said, God's going to bless you. God's going to bless you if you'll just do the right thing. Guys, which one, you know, we toy with this and we think to ourselves, eh, we might get away with it. Well, no, you're not going to ever get away with it. Don't live that way because you know all the possibilities of what might happen over there. But you make a decision that you're going to walk with the Lord and live for Him. And the light of God shines in your life and blessings of God flow. Why not do it God's way? You know, young people, listen to me. Someday you're going to get married. And you're going to have to explain to somebody your past. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Not everybody has a good one. A lot of times there's failure. But wouldn't you rather be able to have the light of God shining in your life and the blessing of God evident in your life that you can stand up for the Lord and you can be the person that God wants you to be? You don't ever have to apologize for anything. Wouldn't that be better? Now listen to me very carefully because there are many people within churches who have fallen. And I'm telling you this right now, okay? That with, the, with God, 
there's always restoration. There's always restoration. I don't know what you've done, okay? And I don't want to know. I'm not here to do that. But I'm here to tell you this. that The walking with God is way better than not. But if you find yourself in a situation where you think to yourself, well, I'm, already, I'm guilty. I'm already, I'm done, I've done it. I'm, I'm, what am I going to do? Can't go back and make it right. doesn't matter. Start where you are. You start where you are and you make a commitment to the Lord that from this point on, Lord, then my life is going to be different. And I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to honor you and I'm going to walk in the light the way Paul talks about and I'm going to make godly choices and I'm going to stand strong for what is right and I'm going to believe that someday, starting tomorrow, you're going to, your light is going to shine on me and you're going to bless me. You're going to guard me and protect me and guide me. I believe and I trust you, Lord, so I'm going to walk with you. Stop living like an unbeliever when it comes to immorality. It's not a victimless crime. You're going to get hurt or somebody close to you will. Don't let that happen. There's, there's acceptance for everybody, forgiveness for everybody. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. If you're here this morning and you're guilty, you say, man, I, yeah, that's me. And you may be feeling that right now. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. Because God is going to convict and God is going to shine his light on you and you're going to see it and you're going to feel bad. And, and that's okay. Because God has to tear you down in order to build you up. So if right now you feel a little, a little shredded and you're thinking, boy, this, the God's working on me and he's beating me to pieces here, then it's time for you to understand that all it takes is for you to say to God, I've sinned. I've sinned. 1 John 1.9 says this. He says, we, as believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is written to the believer. So I need the forgiveness in this life as a believer, not for salvation, but I need to get right with the Lord. I need for God's light to shine on me, and I need to get right so that my life can be changed. Do that right now. You say, but Pastor, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter because God forgives. God restores. So take advantage of this. And start right now with new and fresh commitments that I will not be that person anymore. I won't do it. It'll be hard, but the grace of God will take you through this, and with the power of God, you can do it. But start now. Our Heavenly Fathers, we bow before you this morning. Father, we are overwhelmed with guilt, some of us. We're overwhelmed with just the, the feeling that somehow we've blown it. But Lord, we know that your grace can never be blown. And Father, that's what makes it so amazing that, Lord, no matter what we do, you're already there. And God, for that, we're thankful. Now, Lord, I'm praying on behalf of myself, these people, everyone here today, that whatever may be present in our lives, in our thought life, in our actions, whatever, that, Father, you not only will forgive what has been there, but, Father, you will restore us that we would feel again the love and the presence of God in our lives. And Lord, I pray that in the future when the temptation comes again, that we will be able to stand strong 
and that we'll be able to say no. With your power, your grace, your mercy, I pray for that, Father, for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.